Our passage this morning is from 2 Timothy 2, 1 through 13. If you can turn in your Bible and follow along with me as I read. If you need a Bible, there are Bibles in the seats in front of you. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits, since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. It is the hardworking farmer who ought to, ha- ought to have the first share of the crops. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. But the word of of God is not bound. Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they may also obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. The saying is trustworthy, for if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. Looks like you already figured that out. We are finishing up our series called Broken and Beautiful today. Uh, The series has uh, gone through basically who we are or we hope to be as a church. Uh, Started with the mission of our church, which answers the question, what are we supposed to be doing on a day-to-day basis? It was a restatement of the Great Commission. And then the last four sermons, then today for the fifth and final sermon, we've been going over our values. What do we want our church to be like? And, and really, uh, the values, when you talk about values, you're talking about uh, church culture. Church culture. What kind of culture will we have as a church? What will people uh, feel like when they're here, when they're around us outside of this place? Um, I was reading a book on church culture a couple weeks ago. It was uh, recommended to me. And the author was uh, evaluating some healthy church culture versus some other uh, pr- uh, real-life examples of unhealthy church culture. And here's what he concluded. Everyone in the church, everyone in the church is complicit in whatever culture is formed, good or bad. Everyone in the church is complicit in whatever culture is formed, good or bad. And I think this is a perfect place to start as we talk about grow, the value of grow. I'm talking about spiritual growth because uh, we are all together complicit uh, in our church's culture. It's not just about me. So I'm not irrelevant to church culture, but I, as the pastor, cannot change the culture of our church as a whole. I don't have that ability. And let's expand it a little bit. It's more than even just the elders and the deacons. We Certainly leaders lead. Leaders have a say in it, and they lead the way on it, but they themselves, as a group, cannot change or form the culture of our church. We are in it together. We're in it together. So whether we're going to be a church that's a breath of fresh air or a heavy, musty, you know, the opposite of that, it's up to us. It's up to us together. And specifically, if you want to be the former more than the latter, we must become together more and more and more like Christ. 
That's what happens. That's how we build a culture that is a breath of fresh air. We grow in our relationship with Jesus together. Together. As we do that, our church culture will change. And so as we'll see today, individual growth of the Christian happens in a context. We grow together. Let me give you some context on this passage, and then we'll pray and jump into the content. 2 Timothy is one of my favorite letters in the New Testament. Uh, I'm not sure why that is. It's kind of a sad context. Paul is in prison for the last time, not because he'll get out, but because he will be executed by Rome uh, before he is released. And so he is writing this letter, one of his last letters, to one of his dearest friends and disciples, Timothy. And he's, he, he has been abandoned by most of his friends who are afraid of persecution by Rome. And Timothy has stuck with him. And so this final letter, letter is full of pastorly advice. Uh, it's a personal letter to Timothy about himself. as the, He's now the pastor at Ephesus, uh, where we get the book Ephesians. And um, he's giving leadership advice. He's giving personal spiritual advice. Uh, and really what the ultimate goal of this letter is, that the people of God would grow. The people of God would grow. We can see it here in this passage where he says, and we'll look at this later, but he's poured out everything. What? So that the, uh, the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. That, that speaks to the whole life of the Christian. And so while uh, the direct context is a personal letter, there are some descriptions that, that Paul is making of a healthy church, and those descriptions, as we learn what they mean and apply them to ourselves, become prescriptions for us. They become prescriptions for us, what we should do. And so that's what we're going to look at this morning, growing together from 2 Timothy 2. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, thank you for orchestrating this time, for putting this passage of Scripture on my heart many months ago, and I pray this morning that you would remove all the pieces that are mine and you replace them with what words and truths are yours as a broken and, and uh, human being who is weak. I pray for your strength. I pray for your word, your truth. I pray that it convicts our hearts, all of us here. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. So a few uh, truths about growth. First of all, if you look at verse 1, we can see that growth happens by the grace of Christ Jesus. Look at verse 1 with me. Paul says, You then, my child, speaking to Timothy, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Be strengthened. This word strength here means to become more capable of some task. And So think about a child growing in a healthy way. What do we look to for, for children after they're born. When are they going to walk? When are they going to crawl? When are they going to talk? And we, so we look at abilities as the markers for their, their growth. They're strengthening as a marker for their growth. And so where does strength come from? Now, the truth of where strength comes from is a truth that will bristle at all the worldly ideas that we believe about strength. Okay, so, so bear with me. It does not come from within us. We don't have it inside of us. We're not just gritting our teeth and bearing it. Spiritual growth is not like we're some wounded action hero and we just grind through. That's not where spiritual growth comes from. It's not where strength to do it comes from. It comes from 
the grace that is in Christ Jesus. So let's talk, let's take a quick backtrack here. Let's talk about grace for just a moment. What does grace have to do with strength? It's a question we have to ask. What does grace have to do with strength? First of all, where does grace come from? Grace begins, I read this this week, begins in the goodwill of God towards humanity. Grace begins in the goodwill of God toward humanity. Now there's a truth there. The fact is, humanity, every single one of us in this room, every, every person watching online, every person not watching or, and is not here, we don't deserve God's kindness. We don't deserve it. We are rebels against our Creator. Think of it this way. All sin, all sin, everyone that we commit, that I commit, that you commit, that everybody commits, it's rooted in the desire for humans to become gods ourselves. Well, that sounds extreme, but here's the reality. Think about it. Think about what humanism is. It's an erasing of God from the hierarchy of authority. We're saying, nope, God's not at the top. Humanity's at the top. And what happens when we sin? We say, we declare, I know the truth. I know the way. I know the solution. I have the wisdom, the insight to know what is right and what is wrong. Think about the sin of Adam and Eve. God had given them instructions. And what was their sin? They said, you know what? I heard what God said, but I think I know better. That's a replacing of God on his rightful throne. All sin comes from our desire to be gods ourselves. And so because of our sin nature, I'm speaking to humans across the world, because of our sin nature, we are inherently not strong. We are weak. Well, I never. I know. It's, it's so hard to hear. But we're not. We're not strong. And so grace we don't deserve God's goodness, but it was extended to us anyway through Jesus Christ. Because we're compromised in our nature, because we cannot approach God, we cannot save ourselves, we can't even see the fact that we're weak. We're, our weakness blinds us to our weakness. We can't say, okay, God, I'll be right there. You can save me then. No, we can't approach him. And so in that desperate vacuum of need, desperate vacuum of ability, excuse me, Christ is the meeting of our need from God. Jesus came to save sinners, not the partially capable, the completely incapable. And so grace, at its very core, has to do with the fact that we are weak and something outside of us is the source of strength. And so where does strength come from? Not from within. It comes from from without. The theological answer to this is there's a specific source for our strength, and it's the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 3.16, the church where Timothy is the pastor, Paul is praying, and here's what he says in his prayer, according to the riches of his glory, God's glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with the power, with power through his spirit in your inner being. So if you want to know where strength comes from, it comes from when we, we become Christians, when God calls our name, when he sends the Spirit to regenerate our hearts. That's where strength comes from. It comes from without something we've been gifted, the Holy Spirit. On a practical sense, on the day-to-day, -day, strength comes from relying on the one who is strong. Strength comes from relying on the one who is strong. When we understand our weakness, we can finally confess that we are weak. When we understand it, we understand that there is a strength that we can rely on. We are free to say, guess what, folks? I am weak. 
Here's an example. Paul in 2 Corinthians 12, this is the famous thorn in my flesh passage. So what he basically says here in 2 Corinthians 12 is, I could brag, I could, but I won't because the Lord has given me this thing that causes me to suffer. There's a litany of things that people think that might be, but here's what he says about weakness. God told Paul when he asked again to remove the thorn, God says to Paul, my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness. This goes back to Paul speaking to the Corinthians. Therefore, I will boast, brag all the more gladly of my weakness. Why does he do that? So that the power of Christ may rest upon me. He continues and he says, for the sake of Christ that I am content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. That seems insane, but this is why. For when I am weak, then I am strong. How can we possibly be honest about our weakness? How can we possibly brag about our weakness? Because, church, as Christians, we are protected spiritually by the grace of God. That's the truth. That's how we can say, I sin. That's how we can say, I, I, I was wrong. That's how we can say, I can't do it because it's not up to us. It's up to the grace and the character of Christ. Here's an example. I was thinking about why we bow up when we're accused of doing something wrong or we have a sin in our life and we hide it. And so here's an example. So let's say someone comes to me and you'll immediately know this is totally fantasy. Someone comes up to me and they says, Ransom, you've really hurt my feelings. Because really, honestly, how could a northerner who likes sarcasm, who's an eight on the Enneagram, insult anybody, right, Julie? Um, so we obviously know this is very made up. Um, what's, what's my natural reaction? Natural reaction. When I'm thinking about my agenda, when I'm thinking about me wanting to be God, when I want to be strong, what do I do? I want to keep up appearances. I want to keep up appearances. So what do I do? I defend, I deflect, I excuse, I justify. All of that is me not wanting to admit what? I am weak. It's me saying, oh, I'm usually better than that. Do you hear what that actually says? I am usually strong. It was just a moment of bad judgment on my part. That's not what Scripture teaches us. Or think of it, uh, if you have a major sin in your life that you're hiding, why do we hide these things or these hurts? Because they're potentially embarrassing. To what? Our reputation. Our reputation. And so we hide these sins in our lives, and what does it do? It eats away at us. It eats away at our relationships. It keeps us from people. Because of who we are, weak because of who Christ is, strong, because of what he has done for us, God's goodwill to humanity, sending Christ, living and dying and rising again for us, it gives us grace. In his grace, in the context of grace, we can be vulnerable. Only in the context of grace can we be vulnerable. That's why the world doesn't, it doesn't make sense for, for you to be weak in the world because, wait, you're, what's holding you up? What's protecting you? We have the grace of Jesus Christ. Our weakness becomes strength. Our weakness becomes strength because if we rely on how strong we are, every single one of us has a breaking point. But the grace of Christ cannot be broken. Cannot be. R. Kent Hughes says it this way, knowing that our God loves us, forgives us, purifies us, helps us, comforts us, he's still going, enables us, and secures us, 
all because of his mercy rather than our merit, encourages and strengthens us. We're strong in the grace of Christ, not because of who we are or any attributes or characteristics that we have, but because of the character of Christ. So we see from this first verse, spiritual growth sprouts up from the strength that we have in Christ Jesus. We move on to verse 2. We see that, yes, growth comes from the grace of Christ, but also growth happens together. Look at verse 2. Keep track in your mind of how many spiritual generations are mentioned in this verse as I go. And what you, Timothy, have heard from me, Paul, in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. This here, this verse, is a clear-cut description of discipleship inside the church. It's what it is. Now, in this very direct context, Paul is giving Timothy advice on how to proliferate elders, but, but this, this truth is found throughout Scripture about how Christians should cause each other to grow. There's four generations. You have Paul and Timothy, and Timothy is sharing with faithful men who then will share with others in the future. Four generations of gospel sharing and, and living life together. And it's, think about the developmental piece. These people that are being taught are already able to teach. They will be able to teach in the future. There's this develop, developmental looking for the gifts and skills of those who are around us and then pouring the gospel into them. And so we have this receiving and sharing and teaching and growing in a context of what? Togetherness. Multi-generational spiritual development within God's church. And so we have this, again, two-sided idea. We saw it in the, the Great Commission with baptizing and teaching. We see it again here in this passage. This idea of community going hand-in-hand hand with learning. Listen to the description of this value grow from our church's document that we've been uh, using as a guide. Uh, we, develop one another, we develop one another spiritually through allowing ourselves to be truly known by others that we truly know, there's the community piece, really knowing what's going on, but that's not all, and by knowing God through the truth of Scripture. You see the community and you see the learning piece. You see it here too. In verse 1, when we're going back to verse 1, uh, when, when Paul calls Timothy my child, this is a term of endearment. What this means is that Paul and Timothy aren't just acquaintances. They're not just pen pals. They've lived life together. They know one another deeply. They love each other as a father and a son. And so we hear from this idea of my child and, and sharing in these relationships that the gospel is not just information to be transmitted. It's not how it works. We're not just transmitting information. The gospel is meant to be sown deep into one another's hearts in relationship. In relationship. In order for that sowing to happen, we must know each other. We must. If you would like to know maybe a little bit more about what prevents community. I think Steve's sermon from last week spoke to that very clearly. We, we have fear. We've been hurt. We're afraid of gossip. We have reputations. And, and the, the idea that we have been cared for so vulnerably by Christ is the way that we care for each other vulnerably. And so if you need to, to have another message to bolster and push you through that fear towards courage, listen to last week's message. It speaks to that. 
But community by itself is not sufficient. Hanging out is wonderful. We love to be around our good Christian friends. We love to be around people and enjoy each other. But listen, being together isn't enough. Look at this word entrust from verse 2. Entrust to faithful men. This word entrust means to put in the care of someone for protection. This isn't just tossing someone a ball. This is giving someone your prized possession and saying, take care of this for me. This is a careful passing on of gospel truth. So I want to reemphasize this from the beginning of the sermon. Spiritual growth is not just about one person. We don't just grow on our own. We don't just grow in isolation. We don't just read and pray in isolation and, and suddenly we become better and better and more and more like Christ. No, it happens in community. It happens together. So in a sense, the growth of the Christian is the healthiness of the church. The growth of the Christian individually is the healthiness of what we do here of what we do on behalf of God and His great commission. A healthy church takes all of us pursuing Christ together. Which takes us to verses 3-10. through 10. What we learn from these verses is that growth happens as we work through our sanctification. Again, together. Uh, if you've heard this passage preached, more than likely the, the, the preacher has focused on these three um, illustrations that Paul gives. Uh, and so I'm going to run through them rather quickly, but, but here in verses 4-7, through seven, listen to what he has to say. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits, since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. It is the hard-working farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding and everything. And so what Paul is doing here is he's describing the Christian life in three different illustrations very rapidly to Timothy. So let me give you a summary. The soldier illustration, uh, we as Christians are enlisted in the army of God. Now listen, we may never march in the infantry. We may never ride in the cavalry, church. We may never shoot the arch. We may never fly over the enemy, but we're in the Lord's army Yes, sir. Thank you. I really was excited for that moment. I'm, I just not been, I'm not even been paying attention to anything I've been saying. I've been waiting for that. Um, listen, the, the soldier in this passage has a singular focus. A singular focus. Do you, are there bivocational people who are enlisted in the army? That doesn't work that way. When you're in the army, you're in the army and you have one mission. You have one mission. It's the same for us. We're to have a singular focus on the mission of God. He moves then to the athlete. We, we are very familiar with athletics in our culture. The athletes that we respect have focus, dedication. They practice. They have good awareness. And listen, we know this is true. They abide by the rules. We have so many conversations around dinner tables about asterisks and things like that. Should it count? Should it not? We, we truly respect athletes that play by the rules. What, what, what Paul's getting at here is we don't play the Christian life by our own rules. God has given us the rules. He's given us His law. And we live our lives according to His rules, not our own. Lastly, we have the farmer whose specialty is cultivation. It says uh, this, word, this word hardworking means to work till exhaustion. And so this farmer's 
pouring his blood, sweat, and tears into the soil. And what does he expect? To, to take the first return on his investment. So these are the roles that we will play as Christians committed to the cause of the gospel, singular focused, following God's law, pouring ourselves into the kingdom. And Paul even uses himself as an example. Look at verses 8 through 10. He says, remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel. He tells Timothy what's going on. For which I am currently suffering, bound with chains, literally as a criminal. But here's the good news. The word of God is not bound. Why does he do what he does? Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. He's saying, listen, I'm bound. I'm in chains. My friends have abandoned me. I've given everything for the salvation of the elect, to call in God's people who are his elect that don't know it yet, to, to make sure that the gospel is being planted deeply in, in my disciples' hearts. And though I may be bound, what is his pure joy that the word of God is not? The word of God continues. The word of God can't be bound. So Paul has literally given everything for the growth of the kingdom. And so we see this aspect of personal responsibility in our growth. But there's also this togetherness. Look at verse 3. Share in the suffering as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. We are not meant to be the soldier, to be the athlete, to be the farmer just on our own. That's not our job. Our job is to do those things together. Together. So togetherness in the hardship of following Christ, togetherness as we commit like a soldier to the will of Christ and God the Father, together as we strive to follow his word as athletes that, that perform by the rules, together as we cultivate around us and pour our blood, sweat, and tears into the growth of the kingdom. And what will we see? We may end up in bondage. <laughs> we will face hard times. We will have tragedy in our lives. We will see how hard it is at times to press against our culture and to follow Christ. But what is the payoff? Not only eternity with Christ, but the, the, the fact that his word is not bound. We will see his word go out. The question, church, is will this be what defines us as a church? Will this be what draws us together? Will this be it? Will we give everything individually together for the gospel? Will we abide by God's law as individuals, but together encouraging each other to do so? Will we individually and together pour out our efforts for kingdom growth? Which brings me to the question of this whole series, really, which is, what kind of church are we going to be? What kind of church are we going to be? And the end of this passage really gives us two choices. This Verses 11 through 13 are more than likely a, a section of an ancient hymn. We don't know the tune. We don't know what the rest of it has to say. But it has some truth here. It, there's two choices that we have as what kind of church we're going to be. And first, uh, we can either be a church that dies and lives and endures and becomes like him. So let's take a look. Verses 11 and the beginning of verse 12. The saying is trustworthy. For if we have died with him, we also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. 
our faith in Christ brings about an incredible truth. It's called union with Christ. Union with Christ. So there's something about, uh, it is, it's almost outside of our understanding, but there's something about faith in Christ, the Spirit coming and, and making our hearts alive and us seeing the truth of Christ and, and us uh, believing in it and, and throwing our, our fate on Christ that causes us not just to be with Him, but to be unified with Him. Uh, Galatians 2.20 is a simple expression of that. It says here, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Do you see the connection? We died in some sense with Christ on the cross when he rose from the grave in some spiritual miraculous sense. We were raised with him and so we have a new different life. And so for in Christ, we have died with him. And if we've died with him, we are certainly alive in him. Why is that good news? Because it doesn't depend on us in our maturity and our growth. Christ lives in us. Our growth is the growth that Christ brings in our lives. And as we endure, hardship will become like him. This, uh, we will reign with him. means become co-rulers, become just like Christ. So the truth here is as we become like him as a church, we become alive and healthy, and we become a place that is more like Christ. It, it makes sense, right? The other option is not as good. Uh, it says in verse 12, the end of verse 12, if we deny him, he will also deny us. This word deny means to declare untrue. To declare untrue. I'll say this, denial of who Christ is, is the road to death. I'm just going to put it that way. That's as simple as I can put it. The denial of who Christ is, is the road to death. It's the road to death. Now, you can deny him outright. I don't believe in any of that nonsense. That's one way to deny Christ. And I would say, if that's you this morning, whether you're watching online or you're here, listen, we are blind to our weakness. Do not rely on your strength. Don't rely on how good you can be. We can't be good. Not good enough anyway. And so my plea with you this morning as a sinner myself is come to Christ. Come to Christ. There's no other name on which you can be saved. Not even your own. But church, we certainly don't deny him outright in our profession, right? We, we, say, we don't say it's not true. We say, I believe. And so what I want to say on this is that we ought not to deny him in our actions either. It's one thing to say we believe. It's another to live like we believe. Uh, somebody a long time ago told me we live out our beliefs. If we believe that Jesus is who he says he is, may we reckon ourselves as his soldiers, as athletes following his rules, as farmers cultivating for his kingdom. If you're going to take away one phrase today, here's what I think it ought to be. This kind of wraps up our whole series. The kind of people we are becoming is the kind of church we will be. The kind of people we're becoming is the kind of church we will be. That's it. That's it. 
See, growth in the gospel as individuals will create a gospel culture. That's what it will do. And it's the only way to do it. You can't deny Christ in your life and live out the gospel at the same time. It doesn't work that way. And I love this idea. This actually came from this book on church culture and the idea that as we pursue the goodness of God and we pursue what He has for us, it actually kills that which is sinful and kills that which is toxic. So think about it this way. Recognizing the good will of God, the grace that He has for us, it kills toxicity. It kills it. But if we demand our will, what does it do? It gives toxicity life. It creates toxicity. Think about this idea of welcoming. If we recognize the welcome, the warm and gracious welcome of Christ of us, what does that do? It kills loneliness and exclusion. But if we demand comfort, what does that do? It creates exclusion, which then creates loneliness. As we pursue our agenda, our sinful, humanistic agenda, it creates the opposite of what we want for us in this place. As we rest in the joy of just knowing Jesus, truly knowing him, what does it do? It kills stagnancy. But if we forget Christ's promises, we don't bother to look at them very often, it creates a ho-hum attitude. Ah, Jesus, he's cool, I guess. As we reflect on the care that we've been given, it kills selfishness. But if we demand what's rightfully mine, looking out for number one, what does that create? Selfishness. Do you see? The kind of people we're becoming in Christ is the kind of church we will be. So to grow spiritually, what do we need? What do we need? We need the grace of God the Father. We need it. We need to understand it. We need to believe it. We need to accept it. We need the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the power of salvation. He came. He lived. He died. He rose again. All of those things were awful for him. Except the rising part. That's probably pretty good. They're hard. And what did he do that for? To save sinners. We need the power of the Spirit. We are weak. We are weak. We need the Spirit. We rely on the Spirit. And guess what? We need one another. We need one another. And praise the Lord that God is good enough to give us one another. As we transition to the Lord's Supper, I was trying to think of what some of the questions might be lingering in our hearts and minds. And I think that one of the questions we might have is, well, Ransom, how can I grow? Life is so difficult. I sin so often. But here's the deal. Here's the good news for us. We are certainly not perfect, and life is certainly not easy. But here's the beauty of it. The gospel knows this. The gospel knows that we're not perfect. The gospel knows that life is hard. The gospel knows that we are weak. Look at verse 13 from the passage. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Where does our security come from? Where does our growth come from? Where does the the courage to be honest about our weakness come from? Where does it come from for us to be together and actually help each other grow? It comes from union with Christ. 
We're not saved by our own character. We're saved by the character of Him. And when we fail, because we will, and I hope I get an amen to this, we're a faithless bunch. Are we not, church? We are faithless every day to one another, to God. We hurt one another. We sin against one another. We hurt God. We sin against God. But when we are faithless, hear the good news, when we are faithless, we are found in Christ, He never fails. He is faithful. He can't deny Himself. And so He doesn't come, we don't come to Him on our own. We come to Him in Him. (laughs) We come to God in Christ, and God will never deny Christ. Therefore, if you're in Christ, God will never deny you. And in that, you're invited to come and fellowship together at the table. And so this morning, if you believe that you are weak, you know you are weak. Not just like sickly weak, but like all the way dead kind of weak. And you don't have anything to offer, but you look to Jesus Christ in faith and His strength and His life and His perfection for your salvation. You are called here to the table to participate. If you've professed that publicly, you've been baptized, you've confessed your sins, God says, come as if you are Christ and eat with me, your Father. This morning, if, if you don't believe that, you're one of those outright deniers, or you have something in your life you're holding on to, and you say, no, this is for me. This is not for God. I will not confess it. The Scriptures make it very clear. It is not wise for you to participate in the Lord's Supper. And so I would echo that same warning. Do not come if those things are true about you. We're going to take just a moment this morning to evaluate ourselves. We've already had confession. Let's take a moment of silent prayer. I'll gather us back together with a prayer of blessing, and then we'll implement the Lord's Supper and we'll we'll participate together.